Bay Area's Interdisciplinary Artistic Blueprint Directed and produced by Lara Sarkisian. My name is Sofia Cordova. I am an artist that works with performance, video, and music. I am from Carolina, Puerto Rico, but am currently living um, right on the border of Emeryville and Oakland here in California in the unceded lands of the Olone. My name is Esra John Nolera. I DJ and make music under the name Valentina. I'm based in Oakland, California. I am an interdisciplinary artist. My name is Khachadur Khachadurian. I run Khach Music. I am Lebanese by birth. I've spent my early years in both in Lebanon and then Syria, and primarily in the Bay Area. My name is Nadia Shihab. I'm an artist based in Oakland, California, that works across film and video, sound, and collage. My name is Greg, or as I like to be called now, reclaiming my original name as Grigor Nemet. I used to be a photographer, currently I'm in winemaking. The way that I'm interested in engaging with art reflects the way that I'm interested in engaging with the world. And I don't engage with the world in a single language or a single, I don't stay in a single lane, right? So whether that is how I practice my feminisms or how I am a queer person or the fact that I come from a colonized country that itself is the product of a, of a violent mestizaje. I'm an Afro-Indigenous person because of terrible histories of colonialism, uh, but that is my reality. So there is no space in my life, really, for me to just work in one avenue. So it would make little sense to me to work in one avenue in my work. And that is something that I developed once I moved to the Bay Area. And I will say that it actually started out almost as a mode of survival. I lean there on several languages. I lean on my birth language, my home language, Armenian, Western Armenian, sing a little bit in Eastern Armenian dialect. I also sing in Arabic. I've recently started singing in Persian language as well. As far as my woodwinds, I'm, I am primarily a duduk player, and if I need to create additional samples of, of the other Armenian instruments, Baku, Balu, Zuna, or Japanese shakuhachi and Arab nei, I lean on those. So that's my uh, acoustic point of view. I'm interested in spaces of becoming within diasporic and feminist histories, 
and nearly all my work has a quality of intimacy to it. Perhaps because I often collaborate with family, and often with the matriarchs in my family. The deeper I've moved into my practice, the more I reject strict categories, and the more I embrace a general entanglement of genre and form. I think a lot of the creative work that I'm drawn to coming out of the Bay Area has historically challenged notions of purity and categories or genre. There's a hybridity here that comes out of spaces of deep experimentation. I think for me, as someone who is a non-binary person and who comes from a non-Western perspective or diasporic perspective, my creative output or my artwork being able to be an extension of my physical body, sort of thinking about the limitlessness of sound, of space, and when we make a creative world for ourselves to exist in, when we create a context for ourselves, we're really creating like an extension of our physical selves. So that there is kind of a place where all this foundation for electronic music is enabled. There is quite a bit of high-level engineering and, and talent from that perspective that really brought up a whole movement of music. To see these kind of figures, Don Buchla, Dave Smith instruments, you know, now in their later age, you know, or, or you know, some have passed on. But to see that movement having translated, the Bay Area is kind of digesting the technology and, and kind of allowing for a space to really understand what this technology can do in, in, in pushing the human expression of, in a musical sense. I remember going to a party once and this older guy was wailing on a two-headed saxophone. He had literally fused two saxophones to create a new instrument. I think that's indicative of a spirit that exists here. That spirit doesn't shun technology. It works with it in unexpected ways. Materially, these fragments I draw from come from lived experience of the worlds I inhabit and the people I love. And the worlds they inhabited that now only exist in memory because of migration and diaspora and time. Linking to the past and to the future, relationship to our lineage, invoking relationship to history and creating alternative histories, especially since the canon and since the archive of music, both electronic and within the Middle East, is so dominated by a Western perspective, or it's often coming from a very patriarchal view. Using my perspective as a queer and trans person, as a Middle Eastern person, how I can use sound to create my own conversations with history, with my ancestors, 
creating kinship. I really think about the poetic value of objects, the poetic value of sound through hybridizing different sounds and through hybridizing a wide range of experiences. You can really create different relationships to the world and really create a physical space and digital space for a marginalized body. street singer, was a street performer for years in his youth, this is like six decades ago. And my aunt had a small debut when she was a young teenager of, of folk music. And then I started playing the Armenian woodwind, double reed woodwind, duduk, which is a beautiful instrument, uh, very uh, rich in, in harmonics and textures. That led to the opening of my voice. As a child, I used to sing in, in a children's choir of 150 kids in Syria, in Aleppo, in Syria, uh, for seven years. So, so some musical background there, but not a classically trained musician. Came here to the U.S. and once I started doing music, one collaboration led to another. And, and it was really a process of opening up and understanding what the Bay Area community musically is. uncle was a photographer, my former guitar teacher back in the old country was a photographer. You know, your lungs open up and you want to continue doing it because it's so organic. And I was drawn to the wet process, the analog process, the, the darkroom process, right at the time when everything was transitioning to digital. And for some reason I understood that the digital was not where I want to be. Transition into wine happened organically because the darkroom process is a solitary process where you can sit there, you know, for hours in the dark, turning over this one image over and over until it turns into what you exactly what you want it to be, how to your perfect print. Similarly, in the cellar, the harvest, the fermentation, those cycles are very kind of communal, and the sharing of the wine, of course, kind of like the sharing of the art in the gallery, right? That was really something that drew me as a parallel from the dark room to the cellar. But at the time, I was strictly a photographer. And photography at the time as well was very indebted to a, a very European aesthetic that was incredibly formal and these beautifully composed large format images and that's what I was doing because I thought that's what I needed to be doing. Somewhere along the way while being deeply enmeshed in the academy and the sort of institutional thinking that it brings I was feeling 
all of the histories that I carry with me, all of the subjectivities that I carry with me, the fact that every day my identity is multiple and shifts and I'm not the same person day to day, all of that was sort of screaming out from within and it was so hard to synthesize all of that into a single medium. Everything was going into a tech-oriented world, product photography, less and less and less and less of these bohemian things that I was attracted to. 2009, 10, this is when, you know, Uber, Facebook, everybody, the Twitter, the hyper-hyper-techization of San Francisco, like, shifted from Silicon Valley into SF, and by default to Oakland, where I lived, and to everything else. Everything kind of became tech-oriented, the reason why tech was attracted, meaning like the tech workers were attracted to SF, was because of everything that the artist class brought to SF. But the double-edged sword there, obviously, was that no longer were the artists able to roam freely in the city. I responded by beginning to make music. So that's when I started the Chucha Santa Maria project, which originally was an alter ego. It wasn't even meant to exist beyond that project. It was essentially an alter ego that themselves would contain all of the histories of sort of the Caribbean and the diaspora through a lens of dance music. And from that, video sprung out and installation sprung out and costume making and all of these other things that became a constellation of artworks that for me immediately reflected my experience in a way that felt so much more embodied, closer to the center of where I was coming from than these very kind of, again, beautiful, but incredibly formal images. People's stories feel heard here, and I think that that's a huge part of the history of what makes up the Bay Area's creative identity. I mean, that's changed so much over time with so many different periods of gentrification and periods of, you know, changes in the economy when you think about the relationship that tech infiltration has had on the Bay Area and how that's shifted so much on so many levels. And I think, if anything, as that process happened, people in my communities started to care more and more about how to tell stories in an intentional way, since in a lot of ways the story of the Bay Area and the identity of the Bay Area was being hijacked by tech and being hijacked by all of these economies that didn't actually consider or care for the people who really make up what the city is, what the cities are what art can be made, what culture can be made, is really always determined by what kind of economy is present. Sometimes those limitations create a really flourishing underground, but with that amazing sort of like underground or DIY world, there's also sort of like a lack of financial support and a lack of sustainability. It's fair to say that the Bay Area does have this intersectionality where the space is multi-purpose. 
And those multi-purpose spaces bring in audiences that are very open to being curious about different kinds of music, to have one foot in this door and be a performing artist in an acoustic setting, but also be inspired by the electronic music scene and, and you know, the artists and creators in, in, in that realm. But when I think of the physical art and music spaces that have shaped me most as an artist, I think of the people behind them, the collectives who ran them, the act of keeping the doors open knowing there's no financial gain in it, but just for the love of it and for the community it builds and sustains. The idea that if you're not seeing or hearing or experiencing what you want to be experiencing, you create it for yourself. As I became more proficient as a filmmaker and as a musician, finding those people across time and then also contemporaneously, right? So to shout out Club Chai and to shout out all of the friends of that family and all of the people that I met through just being a musician in the world expanded for me my vision of what is possible. And then I take all of that back with me to the studio. And again, even if I'm making work that is going to exist in an institutional space or whatever, that spirit of experimentation and strangeness and mystery and that the work doesn't need to be legible immediately. figure out a way to make things happen. They try to find the resources within their immediate community to do that. We started engaging with an audience and a group of peers that themselves found their bodies and experiences reflected in the work that I was making. So work that was concerned with the liberation of queer, colored, and colonized bodies. And that was really where the Bay pushed me to work in a way that was multivalent, because if these experiences are multivalent, then the work needs to reflect that. And I think for me, that was really crucial in thinking about not just my audience, but how I wanted to make the work that I make now to attempt to connect with audiences beyond the kind of fancy museum gallery world that so many of us are are struggling with these days. I have experimented with Eurorack modular synthesizers, which are a whole canvas of possibility. The way you, you work through them is not necessarily linear. One of the early founders of ASMR, a wife of one of my former roommates actually in Berkeley, she invited me to contribute to ASMR sessions where I primarily used a duduk, a little bit of voice and lots of Eurorack synthesis to create soundscapes and ambient music. The past five years of organizing a project like Club Chai really like created fostered an audience for myself. A city like Oakland was able to hold space for the kinds of projects that we were trying to work on, and I think there was definitely a desire for a space that considered 
how our personal identities and how our stories intersect with sound, thinking about things from a less genre-specific way. We definitely had to do the work to sort of foster that audience. It was something that carried through with us in everything that we did. And even now that Club Chai is over, that audience is still present in the work that I do as an individual. And the process is still really present in the output of everyone who touched the Club Chai path. travels have I seen a more diverse, brilliant group of people that come from all over the world that are queer in myriad ways, that are really doing the solidarity work of collectivizing across class and race and gender. Never, really, in, any, in, in very few places in the world have I experienced that. And that is a treasure to me. So to be able to make that work here is a gift. You would have photographers, dancers, musicians, DJs, producers, visual artists, you know, painters, all kind of coming together, throwing things. By and large, a lot of people knew one another. When you hustled in the art space, even if you didn't know somebody very well, they kind of understood what your life in the Bay Area as an artist was meaning that you're constantly kind of being pressed by this behemoth capitalist tech thing. Song for Sanctuary is a pretty long experimental performance that Chucha Santa Maria, so myself and my partner Matt Gonzalez Kirkland did at the request of the San Francisco Arts Commission. They were celebrating the fact that San Francisco is a sanctuary city, meaning that folks that are undocumented will, in some ways, although this is debatable, be protected from federal law enforcement and their immigration status won't be necessarily questioned. Sanctuary, as, as we probably know, is when you approach usually the Christian sort of institution for protection. So for that to then mean something similar under the, the eye of the state felt a little bit kind of uncomfortable to me. So I wanted to complicate the themes. In the American imaginary, immigrants are always from Central and South America. And after a visit to the demographics office in the city of San Francisco, I learned that there's actually lots of folks from other countries, China, Korea, that are protected under sanctuary here. And in exchange, the price to pay was the complete loss of their, whether it's land or autonomy in the case of the Philippines and in the case of these tribes. Trump's policy on immigration had just become so violent that I kind of wanted to like really pare all of those questions down and make a work about a singular journey. And I don't mean this in an individualistic way because the work is meant to address many people. The way that the performance was carried out was that we worked with one dancer, Stephanie Hewitt, who I work with a lot in my pieces. We see a body kind of traversing through an imaginary landscape, and that landscape could be the desert or the Mediterranean. I also wanted to talk about migration across the globe as it's being experienced in this time. She did these sort of interpretive dances that responded to the music. Now, the music 
was made exclusively from samples that we collected from the radio, from various radio stations that are designated to immigrant communities, the music being played back in their countries. It was really important that the source material responded specifically to the bodies that the work was being made about. The moment they were, they gave me choice on where I wanted to perform this, I knew I wanted to perform it around City Hall. And originally I was going to be contented with doing it out front. Out front is where protests happen. Out front is where you kind of like can kind of yell at the building you will. But eventually, through the work of the commission and the very nice people actually at City Hall, we were able to perform it inside the rotunda of City Hall. And that became really meaningful because I wanted to state that even though these folks are here protected under sanctuary, the sort of scale of the state, the sort of big, beautiful building that represents the state, doesn't actually respond to these communities. So I really wanted to emphasize the smallness of the dancer's body in this huge, beautiful architectural space that is the state as we, the people, have constructed it. So you see this body that is kind of negotiating her space and herself in contrast to this hard, marble, cold, place, this cold entrance to the seat of power. There is definitely a space where the line between art and branded content has become so thin as to be indistinguishable. I think the market is always going to capitalize on the talent of artists. And many artists will gladly take on well-paid work for hire. Because you have to pay the bills. Unless you're independently wealthy, as an artist, you have to have a hustle. That's not unique to San Francisco. But that entanglement with the world of marketing does feel like it has led to this expectation that everything has to be similarly tight and packaged and polished. Branded, basically. It becomes part of that pressure to brand oneself and translate work whose value is not monetary and is not commodifiable into just another piece of content in that infinite death scroll. Like very cutting, sharp economy of the Bay Area, the artist has become an entertainer. The artist can be an entertainer, but the artist can be a storyteller. The artist could be a carrier of, of song wisdom a carrier of vibration. The artist could be artist. The artist could allow themselves the time and any mental space to not worry about, oh, when am I, how am I going to pay my next month's rent and food? Limiting the artist, and, and the artist then works with that limitation. The artist can facilitate a certain connection with oneself, with emotions, with, let's say, God, with spirit, whatever it is, the artist, through their craft, is finding a way of bringing you back to yourself. And, and I think that's beautiful. And to, 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 to the, for the audience to mature in understanding so that they see that this is not just entertainment, but an intersection of beautiful possibilities. As philosophical as that sounds, it may not happen ever again, you know, where you see this synth being played in this way with this sound effect and you're like blown away. And it's gone, it's a moment. Uh, and, and you can either enjoy it and go deep into it and appreciate the artist as both a performer, entertainer, but also 
Places where we would host a lot of the photo exhibits became incubators. There are a couple of dark rooms that I probably spent like, I don't know, weeks on end here and there. And now, I don't even know of a dark room in the Bay Area, where at one point this was the film capital of California. SF was 70s, 60s, 50s, Hitchcock, all, all these movies were always filmed here. And in the late 70s, there was a concerted effort to stop that. But the arts community was very tight-knit. People from all walks, all disciplines came together. It's just that the venues no longer became available. All sorts of stories that pinpoint that a lot of the problems of the art community that erupted from it, because all of the venues of yesterday are now incubators or restaurants or some headquarter for some new venture funded XYZ. Like I remember <laughs> as I was studying photography, I was also making money on the side working at the jewelry and gift exchange center in SF. And that in, in and of itself was kind of like a microcosm of what SF is. It's essentially like this, all the jewelers came together, right? And guess what it is now, today? It's Airbnb. That's where Airbnb headquarters are. Every time I pass that building, my heart sinks. Because that used to be a huge space for interaction. Stalls of people from all walks of life in the jewelry business, which also is, uh, you know, has art inside of it, right? That kind of lack of space or diminishment of space, disappearing of space over the past decade, on the one hand, it creates a really difficult dilemma for you to be sustainable if you can't really perform and if you don't really feel like it's easy to access the spaces that we have. But on the other hand, I think that so much interesting music is made here because we don't have so many examples that we're constantly looking at and we don't have so many venues that are known for a specific genre or known for specific sound in a lot of ways. People have always been working in some sort of isolation here and then the work somehow exists in a community space or in a performance realm where it's then received. But I don't think that there's always this feedback loop of absorbing sounds from a certain genre in a club and then feeling pressured to kind of like respond to that standard. I think that we really have such a wide range of experimentation within sound when it comes to the Bay Area. Why not do whatever I want, especially if there's not already not going to be spaces to support this? Why should I cater to what exists for me I should instead create my own world and my own sounds and that inherently creates more underground spaces and more underground experiences or more DIY experiences around sound. But it sometimes also feels hard to imagine how to sustain a life here, how to make art and raise a family and buy a home. But I think that impossibility is also forcing me to be creative and maybe rethink my expectations about what is possible. There is an ethos here between the artists I know of respect 
of experimentation and risk, and of what I can only call balance. By balance, I mean quality of life, relations, rest, being outside, the ocean, the forest. The geography here is such a gift and so unique. I try never to take it for granted. Interdisciplinary Artistic Blueprint Featuring Valentina, Nadia Shihab Sofia Cordova Hachadur Hachadurian Rico Nemet Directed and produced by Lara Sarkisian Co-produced by Noriant and Gote Institute Writer, editor, and journalist Steph Kretovich, speaking with sound artist, electronic composer, and DJ Lara Sarkisian, along with collaborator and musician Hachador Hachadorian, for this bonus talk about their contribution to Norient's Time Zones podcast, which plunges into the world of artists and their practices. Their sound piece features a number of their peers in the Bay Area of Northern California, who together reflect on the scene, the culture, and the community around Oakland. It's one that mostly orbits the now defunct but still highly influential label and curatorial project, Club Chai, co-founded by Bulentina and Lara herself. I mean, it had started out as an event series, a monthly event series in Oakland um, that actually was kind of like a spin-off from like another party that we were doing uh, for a good nine months at a bar in Oakland, like in 2015. And we saw that we kind of had this consistent crowd. Um, we kind of turned this bar into like a dance party spot, basically a small local bar. And I mean, our whole idea behind it was to, I mean, not only to take like, you know, music from our heritages and like mix it with, you know, sounds or dance music we've grown up on, you know, here in the U.S. It wasn't only about that, but it was more... um sort of having this yeah space where you're able to experiment like bring in different performers and the bay area is very much like you know they would when they're when they have like club nights or dance parties it's very much centered around a genre or a specific kind of sound so we wanted to have this place to kind of experiment and you know mix not only open format but kind of bring in things that you wouldn't necessarily hear in the bay area or like sounds from different regions or sounds that clearly have links um but aren't necessarily always like shared in the same space mm-hmm. or presented in the same space it, were there things that inspired you to start club chai that were happening at the same time 
Yeah, I remember right when we started, I think it had only been a couple years or a year that, for example, Disc Woman was around Mm -hmm. um, and what they were doing. But also, I think of... um, I think of non-worldwide at the time who were kind of, you know, showcasing um, artists from African diaspora. Or at the same time, I remember there was a lot going on with, like, South American artists um, from Brazil or Argentina um, and collectives that were coming out from there. Um, I remember at the time, Nafi from Mexico also uh, was doing a similar thing. Um, so you both, it sounds like kind of like you came to music differently or something, uh, like from crossways, like you're, you, Lara, more like electronic and then use a lot of samples of organic or like acoustic mm-hmm. sounds. And then you started with the duduk <laughs> or is uh, that too much of a stretch? Because I also know you're into synthesizers and data. <laughs> well, uh, my side of, uh, I, I feel we have the cultural heritage that is common to both of us mm-hmm. being Armenian. So there's some kind of a, uh, kind of a foundational background that is just a given mm-hmm. that language is there uh, when I immigrated I played started playing the duduk didn't sing for 10 years the duduk brought the voice back and started producing albums releasing uh, EPs collaborations solos albums and started gravitating towards kind of stretching my cultural backgrounds in Armenian Arabic and, and Persian singing with the electronic uh, you know, stuff that are just fascinating uh, to me when I started them and still fascinate me at the moment. To have a conversation that's kind of what kind of digital and analog world do on a continuous basis together as far as music and, and sound. In a world music and kind of meditative new age music genres. Yeah, and I think the both of us too are, I mean, we come from different spaces in the Bay Area. We, we've worked with different collectives and you know different scenes but i think the both of us are also so influenced by what specifically exists in the bay right like you know diy underground electronic culture dance culture um and also with hot you know hot works with different diasporic artists as well like iranian artists some arab artists in the bay area um, and is in his own scenes. And I remember when we were having a conversation for time zones, that unfortunately had to cut out a lot of really good things we were talking about, where we, we were both talking about similarities in space and how venues really shape the way we perform and how we produce um, or organizing. I remember we were talking about organizing shows and how much of an influence that also has. But this also just as, you know, the rituals or, you know, the the um, acts of coming together, um, performing in front of people and limitations around that and how that influences your work. And Well, I was I was just thinking, there's this, there, so there was this old, like, cool-looking Googie, is it Googie, Googie Design Building? I think that's what it's called, embarrassingly. Um, <laughs> but they turned it into a bar recently and it's the kind of place that I would never in my life go to and yet it's kind of, what's the difference between the one that's been made into a fancy bar and the old shit building abandoned building that you have a gig in like I think about that a lot because I do I do really appreciate these 
spaces being reused, mm -hmm. but when they're kind of gutted and then turned into this shopping mall with with the shell of of an old building, I don't feel so great about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's um, I think in San Francisco specifically, we've gone through this. Uh, you know, these cycles of old historic buildings, you know, um, you know, that have been turned into, I think, yeah, there's a lot in that in the podcast that other artists were talking about too. Um, you know, film, film, for example, film, um, you know, labs that have been turned into like, I don't know, some startup or like, you know, or venues that have been turned into something else completely. And, it washes out the culture and the soul of a city when you're, you know, completely turning these places inside out into something else. And what I find kind of interesting about the Bay Area is its, its cultural influence more broadly and how and the relationship between art. And I think that's something that you touch on, Hutch, in the podcast, mm -hmm. the relationship between art and tech and how they've kind of like created this huge cultural movement in spite of itself or something like that. And there's like certain behaviors and even traditions that are kind of shared between the two. Is that something you would agree with? Um, yes, and, and it's a yes and no because it's, um, well, it's a spectrum of emotion and a spectrum of how it manifested, right? You have some of the founding uh, like brilliant engineers from 60s, 70s, you know, Dave Smith and, and, and his like, who have made modern synthesis possible, right? Uh, so, so the Bay Area has, has kind of served as an electronic music innovation and the West Coast electronic kind of, uh, you know, with, when it comes to modular uh, Eurorack systems versus the East Coast and uh, you have brilliant people in Berkeley and in San Francisco who were brilliant mathematicians and engineers that made things become what we're enjoying now as, as you know, synthesizers. Uh, but then you have speed up a few decades to, to modern age and you have this kind of culture of tech that is both uh, inviting, enriching, but also very limiting in the way it wants to receive artists. It may want to receive... Uh, performer but not necessarily the artist and I, I that's it's an important distinction to make you know it may want to receive uh, it's someone who's there for a gig but not someone who's there to bring a deeper message out of, out of the art for a community the sense of community when when you blend in the new version of tech and arts in, in this case tech and music uh, it could go either way it could really become so cut and dry or it could actually tap into something very deep and beautiful and I'm not sure where I stand on that at the moment. I mean, COVID aside, you know, things were... I was doing, for instance, kind of more curated mu uh, spaces where I'm doing modular synthesis with Duduk. It was very curious space where people are going and having these, like, you know, they're putting a, uh, like goggles on and having an experience within themselves visually, and then there's music coming in. So there are a lot of experimentation space that the technology makes possible. Yeah. But... Uh, the, the culture of technologists is not necessarily what it used to be. Thanks for listening to this bonus talk with Lara Sarkisian and Hachador Hachadorian, where they each share their experiences of music and culture in the Bay Area from a uniquely diasporic perspective. 
You can hear more on their relationship to sound and surviving without space in the Californian tech capital via Norient's Time Zones podcasts online. Oh!